Please take a seat. Good morning. My name is Brian Petrie. I am the associate pastor of students and family here. Um, and I love the opportunities to preach when I get the chance. Um, first, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Um, his, yeah, a picture coming up of him. His name is Tom. And if you're one of my teenagers, you already know Tom because I referred to him as that old farmer guy. And Tom and I, we went to church together when I was a child, and I'm not really sure how I was introduced to him to begin with. Um, But I assume my parents had a role in that somehow, or maybe as you'll hear, maybe he was seeking me out. But as I grew up, when Tom and I saw each other, he would make make the effort to come and talk with me. He he, he wanted to catch up, and and so after church and before church and those times when everyone was kind of lingering, he, he would just make sure to say hi. And then occasionally he would invite me over to his farm to hang out. And I didn't grow up on a farm, and I didn't know what farm life was like, and so I would do that. And I grew up with my my dad having a wood shop in the basement, and so I spent a lot of time building things. And Tom had a lumber mill, and that was really cool. Because occasionally I'd be working on projects, and like there's this one time I was building this big acrylic oval frame, sign, and I wanted a cherry frame for it. And so if you ever went to Home Depot and you're looking for a large piece of cherry... You're not going to find it. And so I call Tom, and I'm like, hey, what, what do you know? What do you think I could do? And, and so he says, sure, I'll, I'll do it for you. And so he, he gets all these boards, and he biscuits them together and planes it down for me. He's like, here you go. And he doesn't charge me anything for it. And I'm like, that's Tom. But there's something contagious about him. When, when I was in middle school, I volunteered to help as a crew leader in VBS. And... As a middle schooler, I wasn't exactly responsible enough to be trusted with the souls and lives of a bunch of little children. And so I was put with an adult, and lo and behold, I was put with Tom to be that co-leader. And so during that week of VBS, there was managed chaos and crazy games and Bible teaching and loud music, and I got to know Tom even more. And without me even realizing it, Tom became this mentor for me that he and I never even said the word. It was just the relationship developed, and in a way what he had was rubbing off on me. And and he would tell me how he's praying for me. He would tell me how he believes the best in me. My life was shaped that week of VBS in middle school with him. And now that I'm in the position I am at Oak Grove and having led a couple of VBS weeks here, I think back to that time and when Tom signed up to help the VBS, who was his target audience? Who was he trying to do ministry to? The kids, right? But in reality, I would be very surprised if any of the kids that he and I influenced that week had their lives changed as much as I did, and I wasn't even the target audience. When I was in college, Tom would call me every five or six weeks, and he would just discuss theology. I was going to school for Bible and theology and psychology. But we wouldn't talk like academic theology. He would talk about how theology connects to his experience of God in his life. And he would connect it to ministry. And then he would tell me that he's praying for me. And then when I went to seminary, Tom would call me every five or six weeks like he does. And he would ask me how my family's doing. What I was learning from God and how I was using it. And he'd remind me that he's praying for me. And Tom and I still talk. He, he still tells me he's praying for me. He asks me how ministry is going. Uh, he still goes to the church that I grew up in. And so he updates me on some of the things there. And he... He's always pondering things, as old farmers do. And so he's like, here's what I've been thinking about lately. And I mostly just listen. But what's apparent is that he has a, his life is dedicated to Jesus and it pours out everywhere in his life. And so he encourages me. It's no secret that sometimes in church, times for a pastor, times get tough. Just like, just like any job, there's seasons when you just are having a hard day or having a hard week. But in those times, I know I can call Tom, and, and, and Tom answers the phone, and he encourages me, and he tells me how he's seeing God work, and he reminds me of things in the past of what God has done. And all of a sudden, this bad season that I'm in isn't a season of woe is me, but now is a, we're in a mission, and there's a lot of work to be done. And so I recently called Tom to catch up because it's been a good 12 or 15 weeks. Last time I called him, I, I left a voicemail with his or, uh had his wife write a note for me, and I'm not sure if that got to him. And so 12 or 15 weeks, and and so I called him, and we talked about this idea of multi-generational ministry. Multi-generational ministry. This this is ministry that is not um, 
one-size-fit-all ministry. It's not cookie-cutter ministry. It's not everyone sitting in their own age group ministry, but multi-generational, meaning that multiple generations are sharing the love of Jesus together, recognizing that the children are children of God just as much as the seniors are children of God, and there's a lot of stuff that can be done through that. And so as I was talking to Tom, something became new to me this time. And what I realized is that my relationship with Tom was not unique to me. Because as I'm talking to him about this, he, he starts to tell me stories. I ask him, why, why do you minister to kids? Right now at his church, he, he is, as I'll, I'll get to, he, he's helping with the little kids a lot. And his peers often are like, why are you doing this? You, you had knee surgeries and hip surgeries and your spine doesn't work and you're on, your, on the floor talking with kids. They just don't understand. And, and he's, Tom is a guy that knows what he believes and he will continue to do what he believes. And so I ask him, where did this come from? And so he starts telling me stories. And so he told me that at an older age, you can become an example. Numerous people doubted that Tom could lead something like a Bible study because he didn't have a formal education um, and his personality is such that sometimes he knows what he believes and isn't going to cater to the needs of other people. He's going to teach the word and share Jesus. And so because of that, which ministry leaders and pastors don't tend to go to him and say, hey, will you spearhead this project? But he went to the children's pastor and he said, hey, I want to be a part of the WANA program. And eventually the pastor said, sure, let's do it, because guess what? The WANA program burns a lot of leaders often. It's, it's to play with kids every week. It's so beneficial and so useful for the ministry and to teach them Jesus as we're going to get to. But they needed help. And so Tom got to have the opportunity to be a leader. And, and pretty soon, it wasn't long until Tom was being told by other people that he was being seen as a leader in the Cubbies program with three- and four-year-olds. And as I'm talking to Tom, he's talking about the kids. He tells me how they just want to sit with him and talk with him because he's old. (laughs) And and they recognize it, and they respect him for it. If you ever come to our Awana program here, you'll see that there's kids everywhere, and it's chaos, but it's organized. And kids being kids, they don't really know how to read the room. They sometimes don't know how to be respectful. They don't really don't know how to interact with others. That's the whole point of coming and spending time with kids and doing it in a way that's centered around Jesus. But he he tells me a story about his time in Cubbies, and he told me that even though the kids are in this state of chaos, they would still respect him enough to bring him a chair to sit in so that he doesn't have to sit on the floor with them. And then they would talk with him, and they would just ask him questions about the Bible, three- and four-year-olds. He told me about this girl named Sarah, and, and one evening they were playing games, and all of a sudden Sarah stops, and she's crying. And unsure what happened, if she was hurt or what was going on, when the leaders ran to her and asked her what's happening, and she, and she says, I miss my grandpa. And so the leader brings her over to Tom and says, hey, would it be okay if Tom is your grandpa tonight? And you can just sit with him and talk with him. And so she does, and Tom says that they sit for 20 minutes, and they talk a little bit. And, and when the dad comes to pick her up, she kind of hesitates and just makes him wonder, what's going on here? Will I ever get to talk to this girl again? And he says he's not certain what all is happening, but for a moment, I represent the love of God for her. And that was a powerful moment for him. He told me another story about a guy named Randy. And initially, Randy thought that Tom was really whacked out because he's a Christian and he talked about Jesus and he talked about where he sees God in life. And everything just kind of came back to God. And for the outside world, that's really weird. And yet they found themselves crossing paths quite a bit. And as they crossed paths, Tom started to realize that Randy's getting involved in drugs and wasn't going down the path that he should. But he didn't really have the relationship to... Um, to dig into there very deep. But 35 years later, Tom's brother calls Tom and, and he says, hey, have you heard about Randy? He's like, no, what's going on? He said, Randy's an on-fire Christian. He just loves Jesus and he's leading all these programs. And, and so Tom reaches out to Randy and, set, and tries to connect with him and Randy has a wife that Tom never met and so they wanted to connect and so they came over to his farm and they, and they hung out together and in Randy's story, Tom was the one who was the godly example to follow. It was even through those times in the past, 35 years when you don't realize what influence you've had, if you are a person that 
exudes the, the love of God everywhere in your life, that rubs off on people. There's ministry to be done. And, and Tom felt like he wasn't really doing too much. He didn't have the relationship to speak into the drugs. Another story Tom was telling me. His, his son's turning 50 this year. And in his son's life, according to Tom, he fought with Christ for a long time. Over and over, unwilling to submit. And over time, he was in prison, and then he was on probation. And in general, he just did not want to cooperate. But to God's glory, now he became a Christian, and now he's a leader of the Christian Motorcycle Association in Wisconsin, and he's discipling people. Through all that, what was his example? Who was his example? My hunch is that Tom had a large role in that. And, and here's the thing. All those years when his son was kicking and screaming and not wanting to go to church and not wanting to hear about Jesus, Tom still showed Jesus' love to him. He still prayed for him. He still spent time with him. And when questions came up, he was available for it, just like he did for me and everyone else in his life. And so I asked him, where did this come from? Why do you do this? Because this isn't really all that common. He said, back when he was a kid in the early 1950s, he was six or seven years old, and there's only like five or six kids in class at the, at the schoolhouse. And there was these two old farmers who would help out in the class. And, and these farmers, they would um, just help in any way they could. They had a sense of humor, and they were just there to be warm bodies, basically, to help manage the room. But as Tom got older, they too got older, and he got to grow up and watch them how they live. And what Tom knew to be true was that they believed that God was the only way to live, and he showed it throughout their lives. And so there wasn't any single conversation or one presentation or one lesson or one issue that Tom addressed in their life, it was, or that they addressed in Tom's life. It was just that they visibly showed Jesus in their life, and this modeled for Tom what it looks like to do in multi-generational ministry. And you know how I said that was six or seven when he, was, when he started that? It wasn't until he was 29 that he gave his life to Jesus. And so even though there was 22 years some in, in there that Tom didn't relent to Jesus and make him his Lord and Savior, these men 22 years ago were the examples of, of what it looks like to follow Jesus, and that was hugely influential for him. And, and so they were examples for him. What does it look like to reach, teach, and live out the gospel? And so as you reflect on all of this, something became clear. Tom had something in his life that was contagious, his love for Jesus. And he showed it in his life, not just in certain conversations or in certain Bible studies or certain events, but there's something that he just had that he passed on to those around him. And as I learned, it wasn't just to me because I was special to him. It was, that's just what he did. And so the main point of today's sermon is that if it's not ours, we can't pass it on. If it's not ours, we can't pass it on. And we're in this series called, titled Holy His, and it's focusing on what it looks like to reach, teach, and live out life as wholehearted followers of Christ. That's the mission statement of Oak Grove Church. And where we're headed with this sermon is that if you are living as your life as a wholehearted follower of Jesus, then there's something that you're passing on to those around you. And when you realize that, you can use that to your advantage and for kingdom work. And if you aren't living your life as wholehearted followers of Jesus... And if instead your faith is something that you do on Sundays or when things get tough and kind of your rescue line, then you need to come to the conclusion that if it's not our, ours, we can't pass it on. And so as we move to the Bible, there's something about the concept of generations in the Old Testament that just seemed very present in my memory. As I just think through the, the story of Scripture, in the Old Testament there is this generational aspect to it. And, and so I'm, I'm doing my research, my study, trying to figure out what is it about the Old Testament that speaks to generations so much, and then I get reminded of something that I learned back in school. And it comes to the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis was written in a way that was structured by the concepts of generation, from creation to Adam to, to Noah to Noah's sons to Shem and Terah to Ishmael to the sons of Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob. Each was a generation and it formed a structural unit in the book. And if you're a geek about this stuff and you love Bible stuff, this is called the Toledot structure of, of uh, Genesis. And, and so basically you, there's this outline of, literally it says, here's the Toledot of Adam. Here's the Toledot of creation. And, and just goes through and it structures the entire story of Genesis through these generations. And here's the thing with Genesis. 
we, we, it's, it's first in the Bible, so we kind of think that's kind of where it begins and that's where it fits. But when Genesis was actually recorded and written down, it was after the Exodus, after the Israelites have spent years and years in slavery to have their lives completely de-Hebrewed. Is that even a word? They, they were having their identity stripped from them as slaves and losing all their rights and all, everything about them that made them who they were during the slavery period was trying to be taken away. And so Moses, he goes ahead and he writes down the oral tradition of Genesis. And contextually, what he's doing is reminding the Jews and the Israelites, this is who you are. This is who God has been in the past and he is who's going to be, continue to be in the, in the future. And he communicates this story, that all of that through story. Story of the generations, how God has worked in the past and how he's going to work continually in the future. And so there's this like literal passing of the faith through the generations. This is something that I want to focus on. The passing of faith through generations, the telling of what God has done, what God has promised to do, and what he's going to continue to do. Spoiler for the sermon is that this concept of multi-generational ministry isn't like just integrating, saying let's bring the elementary class to sit with the older seniors. That's, that's not what this is about. This isn't a quick fix. But this is something where we see throughout the Bible, not just the book of Genesis, that God commands his people several times for the older generation to tell stories to the younger generation so that they may fear God. One of these times is in the book of Joshua. And so if you have your Bibles with, me, with you, um, or you pull up on your phone, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 4. I'm going to be reading from the CSB. It's kind of similar to the ESV, um, but a little bit easier to understand sometimes. It says, after chapter 4, verse 1, after the entire nation has finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua. Choose 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them. Take 12 stones from the place in the middle of the Jordan where the priests are standing and carry them with you and set them down at the place where you spend the night. Context here is important. What's happening is they are on their way to the promised land, and the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with the people. They're on top of the Ark, which is basically a box wrapped in gold and super pretty, and inside of it was the Ten Commandments and some sacred objects. And on top of it was the cherubim and what they call the mercy seat. And it was at this mercy seat where they believed and where God told them that this is where he's going to be with them. And so for them to have the Ark of the Covenant meant that God was with them. Today we have the Holy Spirit and we believe he's in our lives as Jesus followers, and that's true. At this point in the story, um, that wasn't the norm. And so it's through this Ark of the Covenant. And so if you remember the story of the Exodus with the Red Sea, they, they parted the waters and, and the Ark of the Covenant was part of that. And then when they get to this point here in Joshua, they're going across the Jordan River and kind of the same scene where the, the Jordan needed to be split so that people could pass through. And so they brought the Ark of the Covenant and the priests held the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the Jordan while the nations passed. And so this is where we're at. Verse 4, it says, So Joshua summoned the twelve men and he selected the Israelites, one man from each tribe, and said to them, Go across the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you lift a stone onto his shoulder. One for each of the Israelite tribes. So that you will be, it will be a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean to you? You should tell them the water of the Jordan was cut off in front of the ark of the Lord's covenant. And when it crossed the Jordan, the Jordan's water was cut off. Therefore, these stones will always be a memorial for the Israelites. And so the Israelites did as, just as Joshua has commanded them. The twelve men took stones from the middle of the Jordan, one for each of the Israelite tribes, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them to the camp and set them down there. Verse 9. Joshua also set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan, where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. And those st stones are still there today. The priest carrying the ark continued standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord has commanded Joshua to tell the people, in keeping with all the, that Moses has commanded Joshua. The people hurried across, and after everyone has finished crossing, the priests with the ark of the Lord crossed in the sight of the people. The Reubenites and Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh went in battle formation in front of the Israelites as Moses has instructed them. 
about 40,000 equipped for war across the plains of Jericho in the Lord's presence. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all of Israel, and they revered him throughout life, throughout his life, as they revered Moses. And the Lord told Joshua, command the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Testimony, to come up from the Jordan. And so Joshua commanded the priests, come up from the Jordan. And when the priests carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came up from the middle of the Jordan and their feet stepped on solid ground, the water of the Jordan resumed its course, flowing over all the banks as before. The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern limits of Jericho. Verse 20. Then Joshua set up in Gilgal the twelve stones that they had taken from the Jordan, and he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your children ask their fathers, What is the meaning of these stones? You should tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, just as the Lord had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we crossed over. This this is so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. There's a lot of stuff going on there. There's a, there's a lot of history and context that's important. But what happens is each tribe of Israel, each descending from one of the 12 sons of Abraham, they were instructed to take a stone and place it on their shoulders and bring it back to camp. Why? Because kids, being kids, they like to ask questions. They want to know why we do the things that we do. And so when they ask, God tells us what the answer is. It's so that we can remind them of the miracles that God has done for us in the past. That's the whole point. Set up a memorial so that the kids will ask and we'll get reminded of what God has done. And this is something I think is natural for us. We do this ourselves. If you come into my office someday, uh, you'll, you'll see there's all sorts of trinkets in there random things that are meaningful. I put them in my office for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is because I like it. But the more important reason is because I hope they become conversation starters. I've got pieces of uh, gold ore and pottery shards and it's old carving of Moses and an entire shelf dedicated to these models that I build. And it's not that I'm obsessed with the models, but when people come in my office and ask me about them, I get to tell them about how I have a Sabbath routine on Thursdays and how I build models on those Thursdays as a way to, to, to rest and enjoy life. Another example of all of this is found in Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is long, but we're just going to look at the first eight verses. says, my people, hear my instruction. Listen to the words from my mouth. I'll declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past, things that we have known and heard and that our fathers have passed down to us. We will not hide them from our children, but we will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, his might and the wondrous works that he's performed. He established a testimony in Jacob and set up the law in Israel, which he's commanded our fathers to teach their children, so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know. They were to rise and tell their children so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget the, God's works, but keep his commands. They then would not be like our fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose hearts were not loyal and whose hearts, spirits were not faithful to God. In this text, there's this older generation, and they're instructed to declare the next, to the next generation the praises of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he's performed. Why? So that the kids who hear it, the future generations, may put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God and remember his commandments. To put their confidence in God, I think everyone could agree that there is, in our world today, all these many things that are trying to take the precedence of, grab, uh, of our children so that they put their confidence in it. Um, when they have questions about what to wear or what to watch or how to act or who to befriend or what career to, to pursue or where, where should they go for guidance. Often it's the internet. Often it's their school. Instead of putting their confidence in God, knowing that their deep love in their hearts 
that God's kessed, his, his covenantal love is never going to leave them no matter what they do. Instead of resting there, they go to the things that we create for ourselves. There's something that I notice about Seth, my, my son, my four-year-old, soon to be five. Um, he, he Gone are the days when people wonder things and just have to leave it as a wonder, right? When, when a four-year-old asks questions, we, we can't just be like, I don't know, buddy, because we have a thing called Google. And so Seth loves that. He, he knows that we have these smart speakers in our house, and he can say, hey, Google, and ask questions, and then he'll give us the answer. And so we'll say things like, what sound does a fox make? Or how cold is it outside? Or how tall is a giraffe? Or what was the score of the avalanche game last night? And he's learned that because these speakers are around the house and we have it on our phones, that we can just ask and we get the answer right away. That's cool, right? But there's really big implications, I think. And I I notice this because sometimes before I go to work, he'll ask me if if Pastor Matt's kids, Braden and Skyler, will be at church today or not. And I say, I don't know, buddy, but I can let you know when I get there. And he says, just ask Google. And I'm like, no, that's not how this works. Google should not know whether or not the McGee boys are at church or not. And, uh, and then he'll say things like, hey, Daddy, where's Papa right now? I say, I don't know, buddy. We can call him, though, and ask. I say, no, just ask Google. And, and so at some level, and I don't want to draw this out too much, but at some level, our kids are growing up in an age where they don't have to depend on God very much. If they have a question about anything, and not just where Papa is, but where I do in certain situations, or what should I do when life gets tough, or what should I do because my friend says this, and the Bible says this, and I don't know what to do about it. Where, where do they go? They start searching the internet, and, the, and other things take, give them their, their input. And, and that's not bad. There's, there's good ways to do that, and as parents, as grandparents, we should teach our kids how to do this well. But there's also this point where, where do they put their confidence for security, their worth, their identity, the things they can control? And so often it's in other places than our creator. Then it's back to the psalm. It says, The old generation is to declare to the next generation the praises of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he's performed so that they might not forget the works of God. Why is it, not, why is it so important not to forget what God has done in the past? There's a lot of valid reasons. And if you sit for five minutes, you probably put more than we're going to talk about right now but just a few of them, if, if we forget the works of what God has done in the past, we will not have hope for the things that God will do in the future. If I forget that God is a God that redeems and rescues and saves, when I'm in a spot where I need redeeming and rescuing and saving, where am I going to go to if I forget that God's the one that does that? If we forget that God is, if we forget what God's done in the past, we lose the bookmark in the grand narrative of Scripture. What I mean by that is that in Scripture there is this story that God is telling, and we're part of that story. And we know how the story ends, and that's awesome, but we're still part of that story before that point. And if we forget what God has done in the past, we lose where we are in that story, and all of a sudden God's not what the story's about. Instead, the story's about me and my feelings and what I need and my comfort. This happens when we forget what God's done in the past. If we forget what the God's done in the past, we begin to fabricate our own version of the story, right? Things happen. God still works in our life. God is still powerful. God is still God, even if I don't recognize him as God. But when God works, then I forget what he's done. I still got to tell the story of what happened, and, and usually God's not getting the credit. Instead, I'll find other places to give credit, and usually it's about me. Or sometimes I give it to idols or other human leaders. And so this is why I, I believe the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4 is so crucial to the Israelites. And I know, guys, every single time I preach here at Oak Grove, I refer to the Shema. I, I was taught more than just the Shema, but it kind of seems like everything comes back to it. And, and so I promise you, I mean, Psalm 78 even refers to it. And so it's okay. And so if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Even if you haven't memorized, you should look at it. Chapter, I'm sorry, not four, chapter six. Chapter six, verse four. It 
says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And I, I taught the teenagers a retreat about this. And, and basically what that means is every ounce of fiber in your body, of any willpower that you have, whether it's intellectually, physically, emotionally, relationally, anything you got, do it for God. These words that I'm giving you today are to be on your heart. Verse 7. Repeat them to your children. Walk about, Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand, and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on your doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you, this is what we just read about in Joshua, a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, and when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Because that's what we do. I talk with teenagers frequently that say things like, well, I don't need God. Things are going okay right now. In fact, usually they don't say that. I had one student that literally said, told me about how God's just there when I need him. And when things are fine, I'm okay. Why, why do we not forget what God's done in the past? Fear the Lord your God. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 12, you got there. It seems to me that God really wanted his love, his testimony, his teachings to be passed down generation to generation, right? To not be forgotten. When we go back to Psalm 78, why should the older generation pass on to the older generation? Or why should the olders pass to the younger? So that they may remain loyal and faithful to God. Is it possible that simply by living our life in a way that rubs shoulders with the younger generation, that what you have, your love, your faith, your hope in God will be passed on to those around you? Like this, this isn't, doesn't have to be complicated. And I think it's just effective ministry, but it's also obedience to God. There's this article on the AARP website that discusses the term generational gap. Have you heard this? Um, according to the author, the term was coined in the 1960s and referred to the Cold War with the play on words from the missile gap. And so back in the 1960s, they, they recognized that there was this substantive divide in politics and tastes and, and religion and seemingly everything between the older generation and the younger generation. And this generational gap is something that we still have today, obviously, and we talk about it, and it's in areas of politics and religion and values and even fashion or music or technology. And it's still here in the church, too, right here. Statistically, there's over 177,000 churches with under 100 people, and only 7,000 churches that average over 1,000 people. And so this study was done by LifeWay, and, and they say that the median church size is 80 people on an average Sunday. That means half of all the churches has a weekend attendance less than 80. We're averaging here around like 100, 115. And, and so why does this matter? Well, crosswalk.com, it talks about how it's because of the, the younger generation seems to be flocking to these larger mega churches, And while the older generation likes the smaller traditional churches. And so just based on how we do church, there tends to be this generational gap. But there's good news. This new generation, Generation Z, researchers have found that they are much more likely to value a mentoring influence and intergenerational connections. They crave relationships with older adults more than the previous generations did. And so this sets us up as a church in a position where we have a tangible opportunity for the older generation to be intentional and to investigate options for encouraging younger people. And so we, when we see this at Oak Grove, we, we have more and more young families visiting the church. That's awesome. And we have a healthy Awana program, and we have a healthy youth ministry, and we have developed a kid's Sunday school program. And we're still working on that, but we're getting there. And guess what, guys? We still have a lot of older generation, too, and that doesn't scare away the younger families. Whenever I'm not teaching during Sunday school hour, I make an effort to take the, go to the Sunday school class over in the fellowship hall. And sometimes it gets the rep for being like the seniors Sunday school class where all the old people go. Sorry, guys. 
I think you would say that yourselves too. But on paper, that's not what it is. On paper, it's just one of the three Sunday school classes we have for adults every, every week. But if a visitor were to walk through and take a look at what's going on, they're not going to think that. They're going to think that we're separated based on generation. And, and so when I go and I sit with that class, I, I get to hear stories from people's past, and I get to hear people pray, and I get to... I, I walk away each time with encouragement because these men and women are so deeply devoted to God in their life. This result of results in this faith that they have in God that doesn't change whether what the politics or the world has. They have this devotion to God, and, it, and it's rock solid. And so what if those stories, those prayers, those lessons that were intentionally being shared with the younger generation, something that can get passed on? Why? so that the younger generation will put their confidence in God. And so as I think back to this past week, and I'm thinking about my friendship with Tom, and, and some, some things became worth noting. The first one is that Tom is not my replacement grandfather. That's not how this works. I have a grandfather who loves Jesus. But, and, and two, Tom wasn't asked by anyone to make me his project. But life circumstances caused us to come together, and he became a contagious model for me that I wanted to imitate as well. And he wasn't even a pastor or an elder. He wasn't vocationally called to do this with his life. He was a farmer. He didn't treat me special. It wasn't like I, I, I was the one that he focuses on, but this is just how he does his life in a way where he's intentional to see what God's doing and to tell people about it. Tom prayed for me. Now for close to two decades, he's been praying for me regularly. He likes to tell me that. And I don't struggle to believe that it's true. And so I'd like to think that at Oak Grove, one of the things that a visitor, when they're coming through, that they will notice is that, yes, we have a lot of younger families, but, yes, we have a lot of older seniors as well. And that one of the core values is that we're not trying to separate, but we're doing life together, all recognizing that we're children of God. And so this doesn't mean that we have special programming designed to force the olders with the youngers. This doesn't mean that we are discouraging friendships with peers. But there's something to be said about passing on the love of God and experiences from the past of what God has done to those around us. Do you know this church started in 1880? And there's people who have been here for 65 years? longer people who have been here for their entire lives that we just have no idea what the past what god has done here if, even if we just want to ask what's your experience of oak grove throughout the years and what we see is that god is continuing to provide and take care of the needs that we have if we remember that when we get to times talking about budget and needs and and politics and all this stuff that happens all of a sudden we're not so concerned about our own little narrow vision of what we're doing but we recognize in the grand scheme that god's always been here taking care of oak grove because it's his church make sense and so what do we do about this for everyone? We need to notice. We need to notice where God has been. Write it down. When God shows up, take notes about it. This is something at VBS we do every single year with the kids. Call them God sightings. And the whole point is to help kids get to the routine of looking around at home, at school, in life, of where's God showing up. And when he does, it's impactful. But a lot of times he does, and if we're not looking for it, we don't see it. Two, we, we need to remember. Remember what God's done. And that's beyond just your own life. Remember what God's done. There's this legacy of Jesus followers before you. In, in my own life, I got parents and grandparents and great-great-grandparents who love Jesus. And so there's this legacy that I look back at. And so to remember what he's done in our parents' lives and our grandparents' lives, sometimes you should ask me about my Oma's life and her testimony of what God did in her life. And so there, she, she wrote some of these things down, and, and I get to read the stories from her past. And what I see throughout it is God's provision in her life. And because I read that and see myself part of that story, when I tell Seth at bedtime that God loves him and I was never going to leave him, that's not just a theological truth, but that's true. And I believe it. That, that's my own experience. As Christians, we have scripture to look at, and it's full of things of what God has done. And as Christians, we take the Old Testament, and, and as adopted heirs of Jesus, it becomes our history as well. So read the Bible. Know what God has done in the past. Look forward 
to what he's going to do in the future. Look back at church history. I know you guys, when you're reading stuff, you don't tend to want to go to church history, but there's a thing, people called the Desert Fathers. Look them up. I've got a book in my office. I'll loan you if you want it. But it's super big, and it's green. It's the story of the of the church. And it goes from Pentecost to today, and it's told, told as a narrative so that it's actually enjoyable to read. But there's all these different stories of what God has done in the past. And when we know that, we have confidence for the future. For the younger generation, um, that AAR, AARP article referring to the article back in the 1960s, um, they defined what the older and younger generation was. They said 30. So sorry, people that just turned 30. But you're not part of the older generation. But So I'll let you define that however you want. But if you're part of the younger generation, are you being intentional to say hi to those in the older generation? So I promise you that they have something to pass on to you. And if you're part of the older generation, are you, and I'll let you define that however you want, but are you intentional to say hi to those who are in the younger generation? Do you rub shoulders with them? Because God's given you something, your love for him, to pass on to those around you. And then five, don't be discouraged. Um, this type of ministry is really hard. And, and it's not hard because like it's a lot of sweat and work, but it's hard because you might go 35 years thinking that you did nothing. Sometimes when, when you clean the house, it's enjoyable because you get to see the progress you're making. And it's like, okay, that was, that was, there's instant gratification there. But this, this type of work, there is, there is no instant gratification. It's long-term. And you might think that you did nothing and be discouraged by that, but don't be because God is working through it. And so practically, how does this work? Well, where are the younger people at? Here at Oak Grove, we have an Awana program on Wednesdays. And maybe you could come and just say hi to parents as they drop off the kids. And that doesn't mean just once. That means be the person that the kids and families start to recognize because you're just always there. Maybe you will sit with the kids and be more involved. And as they're working memorizing Bible verses, you get to sit and listen to them. And then when they ask what it means, you get to tell a little bit of what you have learned about. Maybe you'll help with a Sunday school class, but wait, you don't feel qualified because you don't have this formal education to be a Sunday school teacher? Well, if you have seen what God's done in your life and in, your, in the past and you know that God has love for you, you have so much value to contribute. Maybe you'll just sit in the nursery every once every two months and you play with kids. And that whole instant gratification thing, that, that's here, right? Because as those kids get older... You get to tell them someday, hey, when you were a baby, I used to hold you, and I used to pray for you. Maybe you take one of the teenagers fishing because you have a boat, and guess what? Teenagers like people who have boats. <laughs> and when you go fishing, you get to have conversations and tell stories. Maybe you come to the Awana Pinewood Derby workshop day. Every year we do this, this Pinewood Derby race, and the kids build cars, and it's really cool. But... A lot of people don't have the resources available to actually build their cars and have the kid see what they dream of. And so the week before, we have all the tools here and, and turn this gym into a workshop, and the kids get to come and, and say, I want to build this, and then have people help them do it. Relationships happen. That's rubbing shoulders. Sometimes kids get needy. Sometimes they cry. Sometimes a kid poops, and then the older kids are left here, and then the mom has to go and take care, or the dad has to go and take care of the dirty diaper, and so you could be near enough to be, help and give support in that moment. It's not like super complicated stuff. This is just living life intentionally, saying that we have things to offer each other as Christians. Maybe you're, you're just the candy man. Maybe you're the guy that passes out candy to people in church. Kids come flocking to because he's got candy. And, and, and why? Well, kids like candy. But the value of it is because they get to see a man who loves Jesus who wants to share that with them. Instead of seeing that men are workers who have to um, put on the tough hat and, and not ever talk about religion because that's not a manly thing to do. Sometimes you need to talk to David and ask him why, he, why is he the candy man. There's a story behind it. And for the youngest people, where's the older generation at? Maybe you'll 
ask someone to get breakfast with you because guess what? People like breakfast. The Vinton Family Restaurant, really good breakfast. And it's always the same every single week. And, and, and if you go there and you have a good breakfast and you say, that was nice, and then you keep going on your way. But if you say, hey, let's do that again. And all of a sudden you build this rhythm that you have this life and life relationship. And all of a sudden, before you even realize it, there's this mentoring relationship that's happening and you completely didn't even realize that was going to be what happens. But there's this, this rubbing of shoulders. There's something contagious when you know who God is and you have the love of Christ in your life and you pass it on to those around you because that's just what it looks like to be a mature Christian. And so this all comes back to just being intentional. If you have God's love in your life, you should pass it on. I'll close with this. Last weekend was Bill Cummings' celebration of life. And I didn't know Bill very well, but the message that I heard at his service was very loud and clear. And it was that he was a man of God who was deeply rooted in the love that God had for him. And at his service, there were these two grandkids that sat, stood right here and they spoke and they shared about how Bill was intentional to share in their life the love that God had for them. And it wasn't just, they, they, they said this, it wasn't just one time that they talked about Jesus. It wasn't because they invited them to church. It wasn't because there's a VBS program, so the grandparents are going to call the grandkids, hey, you should go to church. But there's, he, he developed his life in a way where the love of God was apparent. And when biblical truths and teachable moments came up, he was there to share it with the kids. He, he built his house in a way where the kids would be comfortable. And yes, that means messy. But the kids would be comfortable and be willing to play, and they looked forward to going to Bill's house because of it. And, and the most impactful part of his service last week was that the grandkids, they said, because of his involvement in the lives and his godly example, they wish to have that same, rela that same relationship with Jesus. He passed that on to them. It wasn't that Bill like, gave them some theological truths and an argument for well, here's why you need to believe, but it was because he spent time with them, rubbed shoulders with them, and his life was an example for Jesus. What a legacy. As, as we're moving to a time of communion, and as we think about communion, I want to go back to that passage in Joshua chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 21. It says, He, Joshua, said to the Israelites, In the future, when your children ask their fathers, What is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until he had crossed over, just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we crossed over. This is so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty and that you may always fear the Lord your God. Why did Joshua set those stones up? Because in the future, the children are going to ask, what's the story behind these stones? And then it invites a conversation to tell what God's done in the past. Very similarly, we're going to communion, and, and, and communion is a memorial of what God completed on the cross. If you have kids, they ought to be asking, why are we doing this? This is really weird. Because I'm about to read how the blood is Jesus, or the cup is Jesus' blood and the cracker is Jesus' body. And to a kid that has no idea what's going on, that's weird. To the outside world, that's weird. And so they should ask. When we look to the garden in Genesis chapter 3, we abandoned God in the garden. Chapter 3, we, we, we said, we don't want you on the throne anymore. Our entire relationship with him and others was broken. And then the rest of the Old Testament is God working to woo his people back to him. Not by force, but by love. To, to say that they should set their idols aside and come to him. But every time that people just began to do this and make him their Lord and Savior, they quickly failed and they turned their back on him. And... They rejected him, and there's just this pregnant need for a savior. And so when the Old Testament ends, there's something like, like 400 years when it seems like God just stops talking to his people and stops caring for his people. For those people, if they forget what God did in the past, how hopeless. 
And then suddenly and unexpectedly we get Jesus and he's born of this poor virgin girl in a barn. They need to flee to Egypt as refugees. And he lives a sinless life and he's obedient to the Father. He reveals the fullness of who God is. And then he submits to the will of the Father and, and then he gets crucified on the cross and he dies and he's defeated. But he's not defeated. He, he defeats the curse of sin and makes a way for God's beloved to be back with him. He, the, the whole restoration of the garden is being, un, being made through this cross. And so God gave him, us himself, human form, a miracle in the incarnation, and he gets crucified. He rises again. We, we do bapti- baptism not too long ago, and baptism is a symbol of this death and burial and resurrection that frees us from sin. And the Lord's Supper, likewise, it enables us to look back at what God has done and look forward to the time when we have the marriage supper of the Lamb and we get, get to handle the bread and the cup. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way, and let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Communion does not save us. Communion is the rededication of our lives for Jesus. By taking communion, we're functionally saying that Jesus is my Lord, and we're all doing this together as a community, saying we're all in this together. So here at Oak Grove, we invite anyone who says Jesus is their Lord to, to, to join us in this. If you like the idea of Jesus as Savior, because why wouldn't you? Everyone wants to get out of hell. But you don't like the idea of Jesus as King, talk with someone. Talk with one of the elders. Talk with someone that you've been rubbing shoulders with because they've probably been praying for you for a while now. And, and say, what does it take to become Jesus as Savior but also King and Lord? The worship team is going to come up and we're going to play our last song. And during that time when you're ready, uh, there's going to be four stations and you, you can come to it whenever you're ready um, and eat and drink when, at, when, you, you are, um, when you're ready. If you'd rather have it brought to you, um, just raise your hand. Someone will bring it to you. And um, if you feel led by the Spirit to have a conversation, notice that our lights right now are going to stay the same for communion. And we do that because we don't. this isn't just between me and God. This is everyone together. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, for giving us a, a written testimony. So valuable to remember what you've done in the past. How quickly we are to forget things. And how quickly are we to skew our memory so that it's about us and not about you? I pray that we might recall the things from the past that you have done. And the right response is worship and thanksgiving. God, pray for Oak Grove as, as we are a church that is growing and a church that's multi-generational. Help us do that well. This isn't extra programming, but this is just everyday life, but doing it in a way that honors you. We love you and we trust you. In your name, amen.